At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey, man. What's up? How are you? I mean, we're we're nearing the end of 2022. The self-reflection levels are high. Getting excited for the new year. 2023 is coming up. Man, can't wait. I'll also, and I said this in the last episode, it's a Sunday this year. Like, that means Monday, all of the behavior changes that people are going to try to make for 2023 are locked and loaded. Are aligned for uh, for squat Monday. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm pumped. Yeah, I'm pumped. I just, you know, it's, we're going to like, I feel like half of my Twitter following, like the people I follow on Twitter, half of them are going to be like, oh, the, all the new folks in the gym, right? They're going to be like, I can't find a squat rack. And the other half are going to be like chastising the previous half for like complaining. And I'm just pumped that, look, man, if, if I go in on Monday to the gym and the squat racks are full, I'm pumped. I will ask somebody if I can work in with them, but I'm going to be sure. pumped. Like, that's a yeah. good problem to have. Like, wow, there's just too many people lifting weights. Boy. <laughs> like, yeah, it'd be great if people just shut up about that kind of thing, who tend, who tend to complain every year about this kind of thing. Yeah. Because they're also, also in, interestingly, I wonder what the correlation is, you know, between, like, when we have conversations about obesity and, and what we recommend for it and all this other kind of stuff, uh, I wonder what the correlation is between the people who tend to complain about that, the, the, the New Year's resolution crowd, and people who are like, nah, no, you guys, uh, you guys are shilling medicines for this kind of thing. Everybody just needs to, you know, work harder. Work like, harder, oh, yeah. Just okay, do it. Pick one. <laughs> what, do <you> want? <laughs> yeah, what, what is it? Yeah, should they do the work or like not? Yeah, I don't right, know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is episode 206, our 2022 year in review. And also how to start off 2023. We're going to make some recommendations on, you know, maybe some things you guys want to focus on and how to do it. But first, this podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. You can find them over at generalleathercraft.com for all your belting, strapping, wrapping needs. Um, yeah, again, really, really great that they're, uh, they've come on to sponsor the podcast and our YouTube channel. Um, they make custom belts. They also have belts that are ready-made. So if you want to get a belt for powerlifting, general strength training, Olympic weightlifting, bodybuilding, like whatever. Honestly, if you just want a fashionable belt, I feel like they could do that. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> do, I would trust their skills for that kind of thing. I was, I mean, okay, how many times do you travel with a belt? You like bring one with you? Um, I would say maybe about a quarter of the time. It really just depends on how my training is going. Like when we're going someplace, if yeah, it's going care. great, then I'll bring my belt. If it's going poorly, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, yeah. It, mine has to more to do with duration, right? So if I'm going to be gone for like more than two or three days, I'll bring my belt just so I'm like, I don't want to be stuck without it. And it's whatever I just, sure. and, I, and I always carry it with me. I don't check, put it in a check bags. It's always wrapped around my backpack pretty much. Mm -hmm. But every time I go through security, the air, uh, at the airport, they're like, what is this? And I'm like, oh, it's a weightlifting belt. And one time a TSA agent was like, isn't a belt kind of like false sense of security? And I was like, oh, you mean like TSA? It was like right <laughs> off the cuff. And I felt Fire instantly, shots. I was like, I'm going to go get a full body cavity search. I, just, I know I deserve this now. <laughs> oh, but in any case, yeah, no. Uh, if you're in the market for a new belt, um, we check out Pioneer Belt over at generalleathercraft.com. Really appreciative that they're sponsoring a podcast. And if you want to support those who support us, check them out. 
uh, again, generalleathercraft.com. They're linked in the description below. All right, man. So we got the New Year's coming up. You can do anything big. You get a big like party soiree. Uh, we have we have some friends coming into town, and we're gonna I'm sure do something that evening, but nothing nothing too crazy. We've we've not been big New Year's Eve people for a while now, but we'll do something. <laughs> I okay, so I was just introduced to this like way of celebrating New Year's Eve. You could just celebrate the East Coast New Year's Eve. Oh, so sure. the ball yeah. drops at nine. Yeah, I'm planning on being in bed by ten thirty. <laughs> it's gonna be perfect. Yeah, yeah, because we have some uh, so a couple big. big big projects that are uh, about to be wrapped up and ideally released on January 1. So the new website is like very close to being launched. I've got a Excellent. final meeting with our web developing team tomorrow. And so, you know, by 1-1, that's the plan, have this new website launched. And so that'll be spamming you guys on the socials uh, about that. Really proud how that uh, of how that come out, came out, and then also our new merchandise is up and available on the website. So the Barbell Medicine Lifting Club stuff. We've got also banners, uh, three different types of banners. Did you get yours yet? I sent you some. I received my banner. It is now up in the garage and will be uh, will be shared soon. Nice. Yes. So if you have a home gym or if you got a uh, you know man cave or woman's cave, I mean whatever a person cave and you want to put a barbell medicine flag or banner up in there we've got uh, our stronger together logo uh banner we've got the barbell medicine competition logo and also the trademark logo um all of those are available including and again we've got this new comic book line of the barbell medicine pill man he looks aggressive uh, it's it's not my personal like preferred like style right but i wore it to the gym and oh my gosh the youth they love this. Oh my gosh. They're like, Oh, it's such a sick logo. Did you draw that? I'm like, absolutely not. But <laughs> they seemed impressed. So, uh, and again, as always, we've got some live in-person learning events coming up in January, end of January, the new pain and rehab seminar will be in Miami, Florida. Uh, that thing has been selling, uh, pretty, pretty rapidly. And I think the last time I checked, there was only a hand, less than a handful of spots left. Um, we also have our two day health and performance seminar coming up in February in Atlanta, Georgia, and then another one in May in Brooklyn, heading back there for the first time. So if you want to join us at a live in-person learning event, check that out via the link in the description below. You can hang out, uh, learn some stuff, do some lifting, interact with some, uh, like-minded individuals. Good time. Um, all right. So let's start out with our 2022 year interview. This is episode 206 brought to you by Pioneer Belts. All right, first off, do you can you believe this? We've recorded 42 episodes of the podcast this year. That's pretty decent consistency, you know? I mean, yeah, I thought I to, if you would have asked me before I actually counted, I would have said like 48 because I was like, man, it feels like we didn't take that many weeks off. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know what we're doing. I just like... A 10 week, 10 weeks of vacation. That seems like a lot. So maybe the goal next year is to do like, <laughs> do like a full on 50, but at the same time, like your work schedule is what it is. And then, you know, prior to having, uh, you know, at least pioneer come on board and we have, we're working on some other sponsors. We're just, I'm just doing this, you know, like, Oh, take time out of my busy schedule, edit a podcast, record a podcast. Yeah. Make- I think, I think for those who don't do this kind of thing, it is easy to, uh, underestimate how much, uh, work and time is required to both prepare to speak in, you know, with a moderate degree of intelligence on something <laughs> can mm-hmm. take, can take a fair amount of, of preparation outside of, you know, like for me or for you, there are certain training related topics that are just like, oh, we're just riffing on our experience or something, which doesn't take a ton of, uh, you know, preparation. But 
and there are, you know, medical topics that I could certainly expound upon, but that's not really the subject of our podcast. And so certain things that we do want to translate for our audience, be it medically speaking or health wise or whatever, takes actually a fair amount of preparation. And then you're on the, the other end of it too, doing the, the editing work and all that, which is where sponsors can come in and help. So yeah, I mean, sure. Can we probably increase the, the frequency up? I am sure we can. Um, I'm decently satisfied with, <laughs> with 42 <laughs> the past schedule. year, and yeah. I and I think that uh, I think that you know there was a stretch too where you were having some some guests on, and I think that we can probably have some uh, some folks come back and chat about some other interesting things or new developments over the course of the next year, and that's always uh, a good way to to make it happen too. Or if you had to have like a top guest that you would want to get on the podcast, could be anybody. They have to be alive though. This is not like one of those you know <laughs> weird hypotheticals like alive or dead. Who would you want on the podcast? Okay. Uh, who would who would be your dream guest? You know, you know, putting me on the spot for these kind of questions requires. <laughs> requires I thought thought. you would just say it sounds like you already have one in mind. Well, I thought you would say somebody like Dayspring, for example, or like you know. Either that or some sort of. Oh, you, you mean know. somebody like in the health and science and well, nerds could be an athlete. I thought you meant like we're going to be anybody. Like a, yeah, like Sam like Harris, globally, you want globally Sam? famous on here. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I would want I would want Doctor Offit just because I'm more curious as to like you know I, you hear him talk a lot about in particular like vaccinations for example and certain like medical gaffes historically and, and other scientific issues like the vitamin C mega dosing stuff from Linus Pauling. I have only heard him peripherally or indirectly rather reference like exercise and fitness and stuff. And I'd be more curious as to what his take is and like kind of how he makes sense of this stuff, if he's even aware of it at all. And that would be just, I'd be more curious. And if he's not, then I would just talk about, you know, supplementation and the adolescent and, 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 you know, uh, younger uh, population just to, because he is uh, definitely up on that. So that'd probably be my dream guest, him or somebody like Messi or I, I don't know, it like, somebody you know remarkable in in that sense but yeah that'd probably be my two my top two but i just yeah. figured you'd say like day spring or nah or i mean he <laughs> i've listened to a fair amount of his stuff as far as the the lipid world goes there are there are some other people who are not necessarily like super famous but have really interesting niches and i can think of like within each of my unique niche areas of interest both in the medical and various medical subspecialties and then health and training and fitness and all this other stuff like people who have individual niches um and maybe that's going to be a source for potentially putting out some feelers and seeing who we can who we can pull on um one of my other uh, i listen to a fair amount of podcasts and that's something that i get asked a ton about in my q a's as far as like how what i listen to to stay up to date with things and i've i've mentioned and shared this podcast with you before but the it's it's they're affiliated with the acp but the bedside rounds podcast is one that is done by an internist i believe he's up in boston and he is a wealth of knowledge on just like medical history. He has gone so far down into the weeds uh, in centuries of, of medical history and hearing um, his some of his episodes about the way things were done, you know, 100 to 500 plus years ago in various realms of medicine is super, super interesting. Um, so I know that there's been a few episodes of that that I've shared with you and it'd be it'd be interesting to, to I, I mean, it's everything that he does, I find very interesting to, to listen to and think about like how far we've come <laughs> from some of the things we did in the past. Yeah. Uh, I'd also like to go back and change my answer. If I'm going to pick an athlete instead of Messi, I'm going to pick Tiger Woods just to get, well, <laughs> well now just thinking about it, I'm like, man, 
it would be really interesting to hear his take on not only his injuries and coming back from them, but also like how his mindset has had to shift, you know, yeah. just going through that. Because uh, he must have been told all sorts of things from doctors and rehab people and things like that along the way. And that's something we talk about all the time is how people, the messaging influences people's expectations and prognosis and outcomes. And it's like, bro, uh, yeah. <laughs> I know all these people were not telling you, yeah, you're going to come back and win. So how did you, how did you handle the messaging you received? That'd be an interesting well, he, one. Yeah, even Lane Norton, you know, when we had him on the podcast and and whatnot, like he had a pretty big turn of face about like his own injury, like management and expectations and this that and the other based on phrasing. Out, he was told, you know, what was going to happen, of course, and then yeah. coming across our stuff and and whatever. And so, um, yeah, I'd be curious. Like Tigers, uh, if you if you rewatch the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines in two thousand eight, that was the one he played on with a broken leg. Every shot that he hit that was like nationally televised the announcers are like oh they like zoom in on his leg and they'd be like look at this you know like the force or whatever and i'm like man that that same thing happened after he had his first back surgery second back surgery and then now with you know after the car accident so yeah i'd be curious just to kind of get his take and like where he's at but i also think there might be some like I would say something like, oh, yeah, and you know, not, that's not really correlated with the actual degree of pain. And you'd be like, wait, what? And then we have this whole thing. But uh, yeah, so we did 42 episodes in 2022. Uh, our podcast reach was up uh, almost 40%. We had one, almost 1.3 million downloads last year, which is pretty good. The top uh, three were actually the oldest ones that we published in 2022, which makes sense just due to time. time that's how time works yeah that's right yeah <laughs> just marches on um so yeah exercise variation that's episode 164 the science on cholesterol is 165 and then 167 was with your wife the exercise in pregnancy podcast i so, will let her know she'll be happy to learn top three yeah so we'll, if you haven't listened to those if this is the first barbell medicine podcast somebody spammed you with our stuff uh, those the top three from last year. I'll link all those in the description below. You guys can check this that out. Slightly un unrelated, but sort of related. Where do you can you think of podcasts that you were like a guest on over the year that kind of stood out to you? Oh man, I feel like I was on a bunch of podcasts. <laughs> ones that ones that stood stood out to you. I mean, I, I the only reason I bring it up is because I was just on you know, two Sigma within the past couple months. The Sigma Nutrition podcast on uh, iron um, physiology and iron deficiency and iron excess, and that one I uh, re-listened to it and I'm happy with that came out how that came out and the the curbsiders episode back in uh, I think it was like November or something like that on uh, back pain and that one also I was very happy with how that came out and uh, has been shared around a ton among clinicians and primary care folks and things like that. Um, as a pretty up-to-date guide on that stuff. So those are a few that kind of stand out in my mind. There may have been some earlier in the year that I'm not remembering at the moment, though. Yeah, the two biggest ones that I think I'm most like pumped about, uh, which may or may not have had the most downloads or whatever, although actually I know one of them did. So the Massonomics one, uh, that was like that range from everything from like the BBM origin story to like our split from starting strength to like hypertrophy work, strength work, you know, health promotion. It was like everything and a lot of laughs. And it was their second most downloaded podcast in 2022. Legit. And that was recorded in May. So I'm not just getting like the, the, <laughs> the <timer>. January bump. <laughs> but interestingly, do you know who I lost to? Who was the number one podcast? What uh, of theirs? Of theirs. No, I don't. It was Jim Wendler. <laughs> Five, three, one. Just <laughs> he strikes kicking, back. Kicking my ass. Yeah. Uh, that was probably, yeah, that one. I'm really happy how that came out with. And then um, I did a podcast with Mike Tuchera and Ross LaPala uh, on non specific training for strength athletes. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of, that was right after my meet. And I yeah. had been doing a bunch of conditioning and stuff like that. So I think that was a really, I mean, I find it interesting just like, 
putting that message out there, particularly to people who are interested in getting stronger, but also don't want to compromise their conditioning, don't want to compromise like athletic development, stuff like that. So if you're curious on those things, I'll link those as well. And Austin's guest appearances on the Sigma Nutrition podcast. Uh, yeah, I think I had three, but I don't remember if the prior ones were within 2022 or the year prior, but yeah, they're I on do, there. I just looked up my, the one that I was on for Sigma Nutrition, 2018. I was like, oh, it's probably last year. And I was like, Danny's, oh, Danny's been doing it for a while. I know. I know. Their episode, I think their episodes are what, in the 300s, mid 400s now. Oh my God. Yeah, well into the 400s. Yep. Are we, you think we're going to make 400? Uh, you know, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, going through the socials. Yeah. We had a pretty big impact as well. Our Instagram on our main account grew, I think by like 30,000 followers. We're up at like 65, 66,000 now, which is, you know, for us. Pretty, pretty good. At some point, we'll bite the bullet and just buy followers just to get like... <laughs> right. People who aren't just shilling up to, you know, two mil just oh my buying, gosh. buying bots or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, and again, interestingly, our most popular posts as far as like views, likes, engagement and stuff, they're not, they, none of them were published in like January or February. So these are all like middle of the year. Um, our first, the most uh, engaged uh, engagement we got was from, um, it was an older gentleman squatting. This is in June 14th. We were talking about technique for efficiency versus technique change for injury risk reduction, which yeah. that makes Unsurprisingly, sense. Surprisingly, that's a hot topic. For really a lot gets of people. the people going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think when people are talking about changing technique immediately, you know, the first thing that pops in their mind is like, oh yeah, for either injury management. Oh, if you just change your technique, this will help with if you're experiencing pain during the movement, or if you change to a quote unquote better technique, you'll reduce the risk of injury. I'm more on board with the first part of that. I know if you could just change or tweak somebody's technique a little bit, they can reduce, sometimes that reduces sensitivity to the movement. So for example, in a squat, if you change your stance with toe angle, bar placement, whatever, uh, yeah, you might experience less pain. It usually occurs with a reduction in load also, because you're like, oh, this is a new technique that I'm experiencing. So you kind of got to take some weight off the bar. So hard to say, like, was it the load adjustment? Was it the technique adjustment? Maybe a little bit of both, but same thing on bench press. For example, when I dislocated my shoulder in February, I could not bench with my preferred grip, which is like thumbs width from the smooth part of the barbell. So I widened it and my whole training, my whole powerlifting career, I've been wanting to widen my grip. I just, I wasn't ever stronger. And so I was like, well, here I am. And finally I had like, wow, I can bench press almost pain-free with a wider grip. And then took that to the meet and, you know, nearly matched my, my best PR. So I think you would not, you, you would not generalize that and say, everybody should do this because it will be less risk of pain or injury or something like that. And I think that that's where people take this conversation too far. I mean, I I think that they, a lot of people might straw man, I suppose our position and it's like, you can do anything at any time under any amount of load and under any conditions. And there's no risk of injury related to that. And it's like, certainly not what we're holding, but I think that people vastly overestimate or overemphasize very particular, you know, techniques or very particular ways of moving um, as it relates to injury risk. And and they seem to believe that um, if I were to change that in a particular way, then I will get some reliable, predictable decrease in your risk of injury. And I, and I think that that's pretty unlikely and, and less likely, even less likely the, the more experienced somebody tends to be in the course of their training career. 
because um, people tend to, as we've described before, this like sort of self-organization process or self-selecting, you know, ways of moving that seem to, to work better or worse for people over time. There's some some value to that just from a purely experience standpoint, even if there's not like, you know, some straight research on it. But it really shouldn't be something that you generalize and say, this worked for me, therefore everybody should do it this way or the, the green checkbox, red, red X kind of technique things that you see <laughs> out there. Cloud. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Instagram, though, I don't know. This is one of my favorite new Instagram accounts. This dude, I forget, uh, his name is Mark Rosenberg. He has an account, uh, uh, Deadliest Lift. Have okay. you seen any of his stuff? No, but I, it sounds familiar. Yeah, he does absolutely baffling things in his garage gym he does various kinds of like deadlift variations where he's like doing like um like almost ballet stances and he'll pull like 600 off the ground with that or he'll take 450 pounds out of a rack squat down literally spin the barbell 360 degrees on his neck and stand it back up and put it oh, back to the rack, stuff yeah, like yeah. that and uh and yeah it's just like a testament. I mean, this dude, of course, is there a possibility he gets injured at some point? Sure. Like everybody else. And if that happens, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be saying, I told you a or told something, you. but here he is pulling 600, 700 pounds with like bizarro stances, like standing sideways, all sorts of crazy stuff. And it's like, this dude has built up his tolerance and capacity for loading to a really remarkable degree. And it's kind of cool to see what is, uh, what he's capable of. Yeah. Also excellent. He gets extra points because his beard game is super strong <laughs> which actually leads us to our next our second most popular post on instagram was alan photobombing me i don't know if you remember this this yeah, is like this classic picture <laughs> yeah he, he looks like he looks like animal the drummer from the muppets yeah. in the background <laughs> but sadly the beard has gone the way of the dodo dodo bird is no more do you know did he donate his beard to locks of love or was it just his hair I actually don't know if it was both. Um, I don't. I, I don't know if they are selective or if they use them for different things. I mean, I suspect that his beard uh, quality and texture is probably a little different than what comes out of his head. But Wait, who knows? Have, have you ever have you ever had a a beard like a full beard? No. No, not in your not in your life. No, it's been not something I've necessarily wanted to do, and it would actually be something that I would probably have difficulty doing now because, um, well, more, especially like pandemic time in the hospital, like you were not allowed to maintain a beard with uh, you know N95 masks that we had to wear to go in and out. You'd have to have the halo. The seal, the seal yeah. was uh, inadequate. So yeah. unless you wanted to do like full on headgear and stuff like that, which is a whole thing. So <laughs> well, I remember when I was going through the like uh, my orientation before my intern year. They were like, so you're, you're going to shave your beard so you can wear the mask rather than have yeah, you to use like the halo thing. And I was like, with the beard, yeah. I was like, nope, I'm doing the halo. So I look, <laughs> I felt like a NASA astronaut. I'm just like putting this thing on. But I was like, yep. I, my face has not seen like bare environment since maybe 2012. It's been almost a decade and I am terrified as to what's underneath <laughs> this beard. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, well, you know, maybe at some point you get a beard and then you can take yeah, people maybe. through the journey. Sure. <laughs> I'd be curious. What does he look to like? It. <laughs> uh, our third most popular po post, which again should spark great joy in you was August of uh, August 21st. It was on osteoporosis. It was yeah. literally a like a picture of cancellous bone and then talking about Tom's, Tom's photo selections. Yeah, I think that was paired with my article that came out earlier in the year on osteoporosis and, um, you know, how that relates to our recommendations for training and things like that. And, and that was a really important article for me, I think, A, because I see osteoporosis and its consequences all the time, and B, because I hear and I know how the diagnosis of osteoporosis is delivered and described to people. 
and the consequences that that has without doctors mm -hmm. knowing it. So doctors will say that you have, you know, like things like brittle bones or fragile bones and things like that. And it's like, how do you expect somebody to buy into a recommendation for like loaded exercise to try to improve their functional ability, their bone mineral density, things like that. It's like, yeah, your bones are super brittle and fragile. Go lift some heavy weights. And they're like, like, wait, they're going to be like, no, why would I yeah. do that? Same with, you know, descriptions of osteoarthritis as wear and tear. And then one of the better treatments might be, you know, involve physical activity for maintaining function and potentially reducing pain in some situations and, and things like that. People are going to be like, so you want me to use them more? That doesn't make any sense if it's a wear and tear thing. It's like, well, that's the thing. It's that's, not. So <laughs> that's where you're wrong. <laughs> so yeah, that was yeah. a good one. Yep. Uh, video wise, this was not our best year on YouTube. I just, you know, okay. So if producing the podcast takes about however long it takes us to record it, it takes me about twice as long to produce it just cause you gotta, I gotta listen to it the mm -hmm. whole way through and like edit stuff out, adjust, you know, master the thing or whatever for video, it's about four X. So for every minute you see on a video, it's about four X as long for editing. Cause Yikes. I gotta watch it all. Well, <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we published less videos, but we still got uh, over half a million views and, you know, for, for what we do, that's, that's pretty decent, but bench press prescription still top and top in the list. It was, it was third last year, first this year. So the bench press prescription, an in-depth guide on how to bench press. That's, that's our number one, um, which I'm happy with. I really like the, uh, low bench syndrome intro to that <laughs> low, B. <laughs> low B syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, our second most popular video though was from this year. Do older lifters need less training volume? Which I felt like, given you know the people who who listen to our stuff and are up to date on you know kind of how we, how we view things and, and 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 prescribe exercise, I felt like that wasn't going to be too controversial of a take. But oh boy, the internet of course was wild. They're like, no, you gotta you don't want to you know overload older people with volume and make them super sore and hurt them and this that and the other. And it's like. Yeah, they seem to do just fine. And the bigger problem is not overloading them with volume or training load or whatever. The bigger problem is under like uh, uh, underloading, underdosing. yeah, underdosing yeah. them, and then you know say, oh yeah, just do this, and it's like not enough to actually cause an improvement in their performance, in their health, or whatever. And you're like, I'd rather err, be a little more aggressive, you know, St still within the realms of like what we normally prescribe, but um, just to make sure we're not underdosing them. Yeah, I think that this is another topic that people might like inappropriately straw man what our position is. And it's not like they're saying that all quote unquote old people, whatever age demographic they interpret mm -hmm. that to mean, need to be training with very high training volumes. I think that is not our position, but rather it's like treat every trainee as an individual, find the dose that they need that is appropriate to start out with and then increase it over time based on their needs, but you don't need to artificially cap it or artificially start them lower than you would anybody else or artificially limit somebody just by virtue of any given uh, demographic factor, be it age or sex or anything else. Just That's treat the individual yeah. as an individual and figure out what they need to respond and kind of go from there. And we effectively ignore that other stuff. Um, those, 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 uh, kind of what we view as more extraneous variables, figure out what the person needs and dose them appropriately. Um, rather than saying, Oh, because you have this many revolutions around the sun, you can't do more than this many sets per week or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be, look, that would be great if that was like well substantiated in the literature or even just our experience. We're like, man, we've reliably seen this signal and we feel pretty confident despite our bias and retrospective analysis. Like, great. I could tell you, oh, you're you're in your sixth decade, so you need 
X amount of sets per week. You're in your fifth decade, X amount of sets per week, but that's not the case. Just seems to be more variable. There's more intra-individual variation than there is variation amongst actual just age cohorts, gender cohorts, ethnicity cohorts, et cetera. So yeah, good video. Again, that's all that's linked in the description below. Our third most popular video also from this year, does lifting increase the risk of a hernia? And uh, we've been getting a lot of discussion on our Facebook group about hernias recently. So if you had questions on that and have not watched this video, go for it. I think uh, there was a post on our forum actually within the past week or two from a general surgeon who was involved mm -hmm. in a lot of this stuff. And he was wanting to engage with us on the topic and he engaged with somebody else who had a question on the topic. So that was some, that was some good stuff there because not being a surgeon, I'm not typically in a position to make patient recommendations for this, even though people ask us all the time. And I'm like, look, I cannot sit here and contradict your surgeon's recommendation. Even if in the back of my mind, I'm like limiting this person to like no more than 10 pounds of lifting for like eight weeks. That seems insane because that's not necessary for the, you know, tissue healing process to occur, you know, in most of these uncomplicated surgeries. But um, so, yeah, he had some interesting thoughts. There's some references that get tossed back and forth. Potentially, uh, if you think it's worthwhile, can can include that link. Yeah, I will link it. He was basically asking, he's like, hey, where's the good evidence on post-operative, like return to physical activity um, in the case, in the situation of a hernia, an inguinal hernia repair. And, you know, he made the, the statement that the existing evidence is mostly consensus, just expert consensus to like not restrict people, uh, their physical activity. And that's true from the 2018 international hernia guidelines. And then he also brought up another paper that basically asked for surgeons opinions on like when it was okay to return to activity. And most of them said, you know, somewhere between two to four weeks, they could resume light activity. It's yeah, all whatever just, that means. <laughs> yeah. My, my take and my response to him was that I think that given the symptoms people are likely to experience post-operatively as far as discomfort, pain, like readiness to exercise or whatever, that I'm more in line with the not restricting people artificially because I just don't think they're likely to put themselves in positions under loads that will cause an increase in complications um uh, to any like reliably measurable degree there's going to be you know a handful of people that m that might but at the same time like i don't i don't know if that would be more of like a statistical error at that point of like one or two people are, are harmed from this recommendation i think by and large restricting people's exercise uh sort of uh like restricting the recommendation to exercise probably hurts more people than maybe a premature response but Maybe, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'll link that. I'll link that discussion. You guys might find that useful. Uh, and then to the website, we had uh, just over 3 million unique visitors to the Barbell Medicine website, new website, hopefully coming out next week. Uh, and, you know, I was going to ask you, what do you think the most viewed article was? But I listed them here. So I, I kind of already gave I'm you I'm not answer. surprised. <laughs> Beginner prescription. These are going to be the perennial <laughs> leaders until we come out with some new hot takes that really yeah. get people to the site. Well, so yeah. So two years running, beginner prescriptions, number one viewed article, pain and training, second most viewed article. That's same as it was last year. The myo reps article actually surprised me. I was like, what the, what people are really <laughs> curious about these myo reps. Um, I thought that progressive loading would have had, would have bumped up the Sure. Yeah. Up the list. Cause that was, if any, if that was a, a hot take, so to speak, I think that yeah. would have generated some more, some more views, but I guess people were just curious about myo reps. And so <laughs> I'll say, I'll say this on myo reps. I think the original thinking that Borge, uh, B O R G E, I don't know how to say his last name. It's like Frigelli or Frigelli or whatever. Uh, when he came out with this, that was really 
the, the idea is that you do a set of something like 12 to 25 reps where you're getting really close to failure on whatever exercise. And then you take abbreviated rest periods, 20 to 30 seconds, something like that, and then do sets of five or something like that afterwards. And each one of those sets, you'll probably get close to failure due to the abbreviated rest. And so you could get a lot of work done quickly if you're in a time crunch or whatever. Um, I think that's mostly based in like this effective reps model, right? It's like, oh, you get kind of close to failure and each subsequent set is kind of close to failure. And so boom, number of effective reps is effective reps is high. And sure. Uh, I don't know how accurate that actually is from like a muscle physiology standpoint, as far as driving the adaptations we want, which would be like maximal strength development, for example, or muscular hypertrophy. I feel more inclined to believe that muscular hypertrophy outcomes are probably similar between myo reps and regular straight sets or traditional training. If the volume is matched, I feel less confident that strength is improved to the same degree, but at the same time, like if you're using myo reps to save time and you otherwise wouldn't be able to train. I think that's a far superior choice than like not training or cutting training super short or whatever. So the way I use myo reps in my training, which is relatively infrequently, is if I have a limited amount of time, I'll do my normal top set and then my backup work will just become a big myo rep or giant set, something like that. Um, but otherwise, I wouldn't necessarily program myo reps to think like, wow, this is a better choice. If anything, it's about the same for hypertrophy, maybe, uh, and probably not quite as good for strength power development. Um, you could make a case maybe for like strength endurance or strength stamina, maybe. But again, I don't feel super confident uh, from the strength standpoint. Yeah, I agree. I have not had to use myo reps in my training since I was in residency. <laughs> I yeah. used them a fair amount back then, but since finishing, um, then for the past whatever four or five years, uh, it has time has not been that major of a factor in terms of my ability to get what I want done in training. So, um, not something that I do that often, but that's how I use it too, is mainly for, for time crunch or if there's like some kind of an accessory kind of thing that somebody really does not love doing. And I'm like, well, can I con convince you to like do some, do this for like a minute and a half or something? <laughs> and it's like, okay, fine. Then you can, you can finish a my rep set in, you know, two minutes or something like that. If you, if, uh, depending on the, the way it's set up. So yeah, carry on. Uh, our number one product that we sold was whey protein. I did not see that coming. I thought it was certainly going to be like, um, uh, one of our templates, uh, for example, but yeah, we, we sold a bunch of whey protein. Um, and we actually just reformulated our whey protein as well. Uh, the vanilla in particular, cause I was not pleased with how this latest batch tasted compared to what I was wanting. So I was like, let's retool it. And, uh, yeah, so you combine that with some supply chain issues and, <laughs> and a global pandemic and yeah, that's been a process, but that should be out here, uh, in a few weeks. So, um, okay, cool. So we're going to transition now. That was 2022. That's the old me. The new me is going to be different. <laughs> so we're going to talk about reflection, what happened this past uh, personally for this last year and where we're going in 2023. So Austin, you, you, you've got this paper pulled up from the peer group in Canada. So you're going to bring some science into this. And I just wanted to, before you bring the science in here, can we ever just have a good time? And like, <laughs> not, can you just relax and just, you know, speak confidently about things without, without leveraging, just make things up, <laughs> just make things up. All right. So let, let's start with some data here. So what is the evidence on new year's resolutions? 
Yeah, I did not spend a ton of time like preparing for this. I just saw that we were going to be discussing this concept of a New Year's resolution, and this had pre- recently come across my radar. So I pay attention to uh, the work of this peer group in Canada. I think there, you know, there's a bunch of you know multidisciplinary folks involved, fr- family practice. I think there's probably some internists, some pharmacists, things like that, and they come out with this resource called Tools for Practice, and it's really pragmatic, kind of evidence-based stuff on various topics that are pertinent to practicing clinicians mainly in the primary care realm, but across a whole variety of things. And so one of their last published editions um, from December 19th was um, related to New Year's resolutions. And so their question was like, what does research say about New Year's resolutions? So I don't know the extent to which they did like a total comprehensive lit review, but I found it interesting just to kind of read their evidence synthesis. They found a few studies um, I think maybe three or so um, that basically looked at how long do uh, New Year's resolutions last. And two studies that had one of them only had 41 participants and another had over a thousand participants found that between a third and about half, 33 to 55% of participants in those studies uh, were able to quote unquote keep their resolution at, at one year. And an- another data set of 200 participants found that about almost 20% maintain their resolutions at two years, which is actually, what do you think? Better than you expected? Worse than you expected? About right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's that seems to be about right. If we, I, you know, one, I would expect more people to have retained their resolution at one year compared to two years. Sure. So yeah, that tracks. Yep. Uh, I guess at one year, that's a little higher than I would have predicted. Yeah. But at two years, that's actually also probably a little higher because I, I, <laughs> my assumption is that at one year, you'd have, you know, maybe, yeah, uh, a, a fifth, a 20% of people would still be like doing the thing or actually like making demonstrable progress towards their their goal. And then at two years, I would expect that to whittle down even even further but uh yeah so that's actually pretty decent evidence i think that like hey you can make a resolution and maybe have a fighting chance at at doing something positive there yeah yeah i suspect that there was a fair amount of you know variation in what the nature of these resolutions were how like measurable trackable they were what the outcomes were and so they looked at some of this obviously some popular resolution topics related to physical health and weight loss. And, and there was a bunch of other weird ones that they found. Um, but they found that diet and exercise resolutions, I think on average in the data set were um, on average kept about 30% or so at, all, at around a year time point, which again is actually probably better than I <laughs> better than yeah. we would have expected. I mean, I think that we've discussed the concept of behavior change before, um, how you know, critical it is to, to understanding this topic as much as we currently understand it and, and recognizing that it's very difficult, very multifactorial. It's more, it's way, way, way more than just like the person, you know, ha- quote unquote, having willpower or, or trying. There's always a ton of barriers that are, you know, fighting against us, uh, both initiating, maintaining behavior change and things like that. So it's like, damn, if, if to the extent that this is, you know, generalizable and, and accurate, I, I'm a little surprised at that. Um, and, uh, you know, as we've talked about, as it relates to things like weight loss and stuff like that, although there may be a fraction of people who have success, we can substantially shift the proportion of people who have success with more intense interventions. And that includes medical treatments and things like that. And I don't see a downside to, to doing those things or a reason not to, if we can get more, a higher proportion of people having success long-term then we can go for it. But I just yeah. found this a little evidence synthesis and, and summary pretty interesting. Yeah, why not both? You could use yeah. both. Yeah. Also, does that mean the NNT, the number needed to treat, is three? Like, <laughs> like one out of every three people? I don't know. Well, seems unlikely. But again, the the the, the nature of those resolutions were were probably super variable. They weren't all relating to health and fitness and 
you know, weight management and things like that. Sure. All right. So Dr. B, did you have a resolution last year for 2021? Uh, no, I don't tend to do New Year's <laughs> resolutions, honestly. And it's not like I have anything against them. I just don't really like think that way. I don't yeah, think yeah. Um, the, the time, like I, I recognize that, you know, and, and we learned this even in our own training when we're, you know, working on behavior change, like working with patients to like set a date, for example, of like, yeah, when, when are you going to stop know, or start? Are, exactly. With like smoking cessation, whatever the case is. I don't really think about like the time, uh, the temporal component like means nothing <laughs> to me. Right. Like one day is no different than any other. And so oh gosh, it's a matter different. of like, <laughs> it's like a matter of, am I going to do this or not? Um, and, and am I at that action point now or, you know, next week or a particular like first of January position relative to the sun is not going to make a difference to me, but yeah. I know other people are going to, you know, think about this and, and uh, do it differently. You sound just like my dad. Uh, his, his birthday is in July and yeah. every year I, I get excited about my dad's birthday. I'm like, yeah, yeah. this is so great. I'm so happy. We get to spend this together, spend some time together. we get to like do a lot more stuff together now. And he's like, it's just another day. What do you mean? Yeah, and I was right. like, but, but you were born on this day. He goes, if you say so. And I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> just be excited, Leonard. Come on. Yeah. Man. Uh, well, I will confess or, or, you know, whatever, not confession. I don't feel bad about it, but like Last year or 2021 in November, that's when we had our Sacramento seminar and I was like one week out from a meet. And at that particular seminar, I was short of breath. I was feeling real crummy. And then I tore my adductor at that meet. And so I think it, that had, that's like the sickest I've ever felt. And like, like most of my, I felt like my health has been compromised at that point. And so my resolution, I was like, I need to improve my conditioning to a point where I feel like. I can do anything because that that's like the only time I had noticed. I'm like, damn, I'm like, what is going on? Like it, it like nothing else mattered at that point besides my health, you know? And I think yeah. it's a really, it, it's not a novel, you know, uh, uh, experience or observation that like, Hey, when your health isn't great, like that becomes the most important thing to you. I had just never ex personally experienced it. And, you sure. know, I'd be, yeah. sure I'd been sick before, but not to that extent. And yeah. then also with the tornado, I'm like, God, my leg hurts. I feel weak. I'm like, ugh, it's awful. So like my whole thing, I was like, I want to be, very well conditioned in 2022. So I started, I was just doing very low intensity, steady state stuff on the exercise bike. I was doing a lot, maybe, uh, you know, four and a half, five hours a week of just low and slow stuff. Because at that point prior, I'd only been doing like two days a week of some higher intensity stuff as like a, what I thought was maintenance, but I never was really testing my conditioning in any way. I never, you know, uh, uh until I started getting back into motocross and I was like, oh boy, you could use you yeah. could use some extra lungs here, but I couldn't hop in whole hog to like a conditioning program. Cause I just, my base really wasn't there. So yeah, I spent uh, a good chunk of time just building a base. I did that for about four months leading up to my meet in May. And then afterwards my resting heart rate got down into the low fifties. And I was like, okay, so I'm, I have this base of conditioning. Now I can start doing harder efforts because I have this sort of tolerance built up in this capacity where I can actually, uh, not just do the conditioning piece, but also thrive in this level of training load from that particular exercise mode. So I did accomplish my resolution, uh, okay. as far as like improving my conditioning, I did want to row a, a sub 20 minute 5k, but I have not tested that because I'm scared. I just know it's it going to, it's going to hurt. Extremely painful. It's yes. going to hurt. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, but on my exercise bike, um, I passed the million meter mark twice. Yeah. So I, I don't know what that says other than like, 
I've been on the bike a lot. <laughs> and so as a reward to myself, I just purchased a new road bike and oh boy, I am super excited. Not about the spandex, not about the gear, whatever this, did you know this in r- the road bike world? Now you can get, there's electronic shifting. It just shifts for you. You just like, you like don't have to click it. It just does it. I did not know that. I'm sure. I mean, my wife's whole family, her dad and brother are like pretty elite cyclists. And so I'm sure they are. They're on it. that stuff. Or, or I wonder, um, I could also see a situation where it's like those, those level of elite cyclists are like, I don't need that stuff. I, I can yeah. do it better. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't I, trust it. Like I could see that happening too. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I actually don't. I don't know because I'm not in that scene enough, but yeah. I will say, uh, within the motors motocross scene, they use the road bike a lot as a conditioning tool and okay. they were raving about this. And I was like, Oh, huh, I didn't even know cool. there was a thing when test rode this thing. Oh my gosh. <sighs> <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm pumped. Yeah. So, uh, if you guys are into cycling, I'll be on Strava. It's an app that just tracks like all your mileage and your routes and gives you like different, uh, like time pieces to see like, Oh, are you better than you were last time? It's pretty cool. So you guys can follow me on Strava if you want to do that. Um, all right, Austin, do you have a training highlight of 2022? I know what I think it's going to be. And I wish I could just mute you and like tell the audience. (laughs) (laughs) If you would like to take a stab at it, there's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Okay. So, so it's between, it's between two things. So Thing one is 765 deadlift. Now it was with straps. It was sumo, which I obviously I think is all fine and counts. But I think <laughs> the 455 bench press actually means more to you uh, because you're like, I haven't been able to bench press a PR in much longer than that. And to the extent that it met the competition standard or whatever, you probably feel better about it. So my vote is for the bench press with a hat tip to maybe yeah. that deadlift. <laughs> yeah. So that deadlift, I think that deadlift happened like late December of 2021. Ooh, so it was actually right. just before. So the, the, I would say the two, you know, at big biggest, there's a couple like pretty good lifting performances I would say that I had this year. And, and as uh, we've talked about before, eventually your training gets to that point where you're like, yeah, I had like two good days this year. (laughs) (laughs) Two remarkable days. Sure. Right. Right. So one was when I, I uh, I pulled a conventional deadlifted uh, 600 for 10, which was pretty cool. The, uh, around that same month, maybe even like that same week um, is when I benched 455. So that was like a pretty, that was like the, the strongest week I think I've ever had was was pretty much then. Um, I think later in the year I did a pause deadlift with 700. But yeah, I agree. I think that the 600 for 10 and the 455 bench were probably the, the performances that I was most pleased with uh, for the year. Um, things, as we've talked about, taking a bit more of a break from like the top end stuff at the moment. And I actually have as tends to happen periodically, a sore elbow again. So I'm going to fix that up and eventually get back to doing my thing but that's kind of that's kind of where we are so yeah that was my that was the big big uh, performances for my year i think mine has to be that meet in may just coming from the dislocated shoulder in february and then still hitting an all-time pr total yeah. uh and like i actually had that was probably the be- most fun meet that i've ever had because i was just i mean i didn't even use my headphones i was just like hanging out having a good time yeah. and then low expectations and happen to be strong worked out (laughs) worked out yeah so since you don't make resolutions for next year i'll just i won't even ask you but i will tell the audience that my resolution for 2023 uh and this is it's kind of gonna go against the well i don't know if it's gonna go against our actual recommendations because it's really not outcome oriented it's more process oriented i want to be engaged in the process of qualifying for the 2023 loretta lynn's amateur national motocross championships i went in 2003 so this would be my 20 year anniversary 
uh, we call it the ranch. It's a, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. It's in a place called Waverly. It's at the Loretta Lynn Dude Ranch, and she recently passed away. So in any case, I went there in 2003, uh, and we got 18 inches of rain that week. Everything It was just a mud fest the whole time. And I was like, I got to come back. I got to come back when it's not raining cats and dogs. And uh, yeah, so I'll just do it in one of the vet classes, plus 30 or something like that. And uh, so I don't, I don't know if I'm fast enough to make it, but I'm going to try. Cool. Uh, yeah. So we'll see. I don't know what that says about my, you know, <laughs> prospects for musculoskeletal health yeah. <laughs> in 2023, but we're going to try. Um, okay. So as we transition to 2023, we're going to give you the top five tips that you may be interested in, in starting your new year's off. Right. And again, this is episode 206 brought to you by pioneer belts. You can check them out at generalleathercraft.com. So first off, we're going to talk about physical activity. This is a barbell medicine podcast. We like to talk about exercise. And so I think most of the people listening to this are likely meeting the physical activity guidelines from a resistance training standpoint, which is to say they are engaging in resistance training of all the major muscle groups multiple times per week, at least twice a week. I think you, would you agree that most of the people listening to this are probably lifting weights twice a week? That's our, that's our selection bias. I think most people are doing that overall, unless they're in a, you know, a life stress phase and things sometimes take a back seat. But I think on average, yes, we have a enriched, artificially enriched population for that. <laughs> yeah. But if, so if I had to guess, I would suspect that if, if any part of our listenership's physical activity, like weekly physical activity is lacking, it would be with respect to conditioning. And so the current guidelines suggest that you should get 500 met minutes per week of conditioning. And every time we've said met minutes before, people's eyes glaze over and they're like, dude, what does that mean? And I'm like, all right, fine, just ignore it. Uh, you need 150 to 300 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous physical activity. That would be anything from like a really brisk walk to like a pretty light light, moderate effort on a bike, on a rower, uh, whatever, something like that. Uh, or you can get 75 to 150 minutes per week of vigorous intensity activity, which would be like, you probably can't walk fast enough unless you were talking like race walking training that, you know, that would certainly qualify, but like a harder effort on the bike or rower or whatever. Uh, and so if I had to guess most people listening to this, I would probably guess two thirds of them are not meeting that guideline. They're thinking, well, I walk this much per day or something like that, or I do conditioning twice a week. And it's like, it really should probably be more like three to five times of like dedicated conditioning per week, depending on the duration. And in an ideal world, you'd be doing some sort of physical activity most days. And so my challenge to you guys listening to this is to step up your conditioning game. And I would do so in a metered met, uh, method, meaning that you're going to start with pretty low intensity, steady state stuff, build that sort of conditioning base. And then you can um, kind of uh, pick stuff that you're more interested in and maybe more challenging. But at that point, you have the base of conditioning, base of training tolerance to draw from. When people talk about this interference effect between conditioning work and strength training, what you're seeing, and as far as we can tell by the literature, is it just tends to be too much of a training load. It's not that the cardio stuff is actually interfering with your strength gains. It's just too much training at that time for you to demonstrate strength improvements, hypertrophy improvements, or as much conditioning improvements as you'd otherwise get if the total training load was better suited to what you were currently uh, ready for. And so I think, you know, start low and slow, and then you can gradually go up from there. Um, Austin, when you started swimming this past year, for example, I'm certain that it looked a lot different day one than it does now at day 200 or however long you've been doing it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that when I was first getting back into the pool, uh, a quote unquote workout would have been like 
500 yards or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas like when I was in full peak training mode, you know, whatever, 15 years ago, a typical workout would have been like six to 7,000 yards. Mm -hmm. And so I started with an extremely low dose and none of it was fast. I did not even attempt to sprint in the water for a couple months um, after getting, getting going. And then that was built up a bit. So, and I'm still not interested in getting back to the levels that I was, you know, training at in terms of vo volumes and things like that in the past, because, you know, goals are different. And my, my willingness to do that, particularly by myself is uh, not high. Um, but yeah, uh, that would, I, I think you make a decent case for that. Yeah. So ideally you would be getting, you know, most people who are listening to this would be doing, um, yeah, somewhere, uh, in that 20 to 30 minutes of conditioning four to six, maybe seven times a week. So and the intensity and the intent, I mean, like going by those guidelines with the met figures and things like that, um, the intensity probably does not need to be as high as you might be envisioning. Correct. So yeah. like when you hear vigorous intensity, like people who train, who enjoy training, they're probably thinking like, max out actual high intensity interval stuff it's like no it's yeah, just yeah. Not, like this is these are general population vigorous intensity which is for you you know not extremely intense um and so you can you know you can probably it, it we are more concerned with the with the volume of activity i think than like met cranking up the intensity and things like that so like moderate intensity does not have to be that hard if you're doing enough of it yeah. Yeah. So like from a walking pace, most people's self-selected walking pace, if they're otherwise, uh, you know, musculoskeletally intact is just at the like lower bound of the moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity. So if you're walking at your self-selected pace or maybe a little faster, that probably qualifies. Um, but yeah, if you want to do higher intensity stuff later on, um, that's fine too. But yeah, it doesn't have to be RP eight, RP nine or whatever. In fact, I'm thinking like for the moderate to vigorous stuff, you're thinking RP six, uh, or, uh, or if you're using the 12 to 20, you know, Borg Warner scale, yeah. RP 12, 13, something like that. Um, and then, yeah, I, I would start low and slow, um, and then plan over the next four to six weeks to get up to that full on physical activity guideline sort of minimum of the 150 to 300 minutes per week. And, uh, that seems to me like a good run in period for folks and should not affect your strength in a negative manner or your hypertrophy outcomes in a negative manner, maybe even positively, because you should be able to recover a little faster, uh, not only between sets, but between workouts, uh, and handle additional training volume, which at some point you're going to need. So that's number one, from an activity standpoint, that is our first recommendation. Recommendation number two, we're going to talk about the dietary pattern. Now, I know what you guys are thinking. These boys are just going to tell us to eat more protein, eat cleaner. And I got a surprise for you. Neither. <laughs> I would prefer, if anything, that you increase your intake of plant matter, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, things of that nat nature. I think if I could make one like change in people's dietary pattern um, from like a like what this food actually is, I would say eat more plants. Because I know that if you eat more plants, that's going to displace other things. Um, and so that tends to portend a good outcome with respect to weight management, body composition. And even if the weight and body composition doesn't change, just overall health trajectory seems to improve the higher the level of plant matter intake. So more fruits, more vegetables, whole grains, legumes, et cetera, uh, would be the move there. If I could make a second recommendation, it would be to reduce exposure to and intake of ultra processed foods. So if you could get kick those out of the house, if you could, you know, hide them at your job, for example, make it easier 
uh, to select the health promoting choice, like the vegetables and fruits that comes in first uh, in front of the uh, processed food, for example, that would be great. But first and foremost, I'd say plant matter. Austin says, drink less, just in general, <laughs> less water, less water. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to agree with the plant matter uh, uh, recommendation up front. There was some, some interesting recent discussion online. Um, a friend, um, Simon Hill, who, who uh, he, he has his own podcast and he, he has a, a vegan slant, but he's very open to evidence and conversation on all sorts of things. And uh, he had come across some recommendations, uh, basically, that people were citing data relating to sarcopenia, which is a topic we've talked about a bunch before, and saying sarcopenia relates to you know inadequate muscle strength and muscle mass and increases risk of death and things like that. So everybody should be eating a whole bunch more meat for protein to fix sarcopenia. And it's like... Uh, that is not at all the way that this <laughs> this yeah, works. Yeah. So sarcopenia overwhelmingly is a problem of inadequate physical activity. I think that people in the training world, who may, many of whom may be in our audience, probably overestimate the effect of dietary protein on your training outcomes once you hit a pretty modest level. And we talked about this recently. Um, I think that we would continue to stand by an argument that the RDA of like a 0.8 grams per kilo is probably not ideal. Um, is, is less than what we would recommend for, for most folks, broadly speaking, particularly those who are wanting to get the best outcomes they can from their training. Uh, but I think that um, the threshold for where the benefits really start to like diminishing returns start to level off is probably a lot lower than, than people in the lifting world might think. They might mm -hmm. say, I have to get 2.5 grams per, per kilo of protein or something like that to you know, or, or else I'm wasting my time. And it's like, mm, not even, not, not even close. Like if you're over, you know, what, like we talked about before in like the 1.2 to 1.5, 1.6 range, if you're in that range, you're probably getting like the majority of benefits there are to be had from this um, outside of certain like individual situations. If you're super lean and dieting and super jacked for a bodybuilding show or something, then, but those are like really, really fringe cases. And so I think that our emphasis, I mean, I would, would you agree? I think that uh, probably over time, we've probably de-emphasized a bit um, the, the role of like really, really high protein intakes um, as they relate to getting the best outcomes you can and putting more of that emphasis on the actual nature, how your training is set up in general. And then from the dietary standpoint, shifting the pattern more towards health oriented outcomes once you hit a reasonable, you know, level of protein intake. Yeah. Yeah. I think when people, I mean, you know, our uh, recommendations from a few years ago that uh, if people did view those as protein centric, so to speak, I, I think that, you know, if you make that change, like I'm going to eat a lot more dietary protein, lean dietary protein, well, your whole dietary pattern shifting. And so maybe yeah. on balance that ended up reflect like looking a lot like pretty similar to what we're currently recommending, but now I'm more like, I think you're just eating enough protein probably. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't <laughs> and, need to be your top priority at this point. Yeah. Yeah. The bigger priority is like, Hey, let's get more plant matter in there. Let's get more dietary fiber in there from ideally whole food sources. And if, for people who are at risk of sarcopenia or whatever, you know, grandma doesn't need to take a protein shake. She, it'd probably be better if she just started lifting. I mean, yeah. and if yeah. she wants to take protein shake, cool. Yeah. But like first let's make sure she's lifting. Yep. Yeah. So like you said on the last one with your challenge to people as far as increasing their conditioning on the, the challenge to people uh, uh, on this one is like 
learn how to prepare legumes or something like that. Like, yeah. To the extent that they're not a habitual portion of your diet, um, it's probably because of maybe, you know, cultural stuff, how you were raised, what you grew up eating, whatever the case is. And you may not know how to prepare these foods in a way that you might enjoy or something like that. But figuring out how you can prepare, be it chickpeas or black beans or lentils or something like that. And it doesn't need to be your sole protein source, but incorporating that in your diet and it'll probably displace... Uh, something else and and that might be for the better um so so that would be the thing on the plant matter and then yes i added drink less particularly talking about alcohol okay. um, i think that there's you know rates of alcohol related liver disease um tend have tended to increase in in recent years i certainly see a ton of alcohol related both liver disease and other diseases be it neurodegenerative cardiovascular um you know things like that and so i think that uh, from it to the extent we can consider this part of the dietary pattern yes uh, reducing habitual alcohol use would be uh good for just about everybody yeah same thing with just calorie containing beverages at large yeah. so anything that you eat, drink that's not like a protein shake or, or something like that that has calories in it, I would try to jettison from the dietary pattern if possible, uh, mainly because uh, we do not compensate for those liquid calories very well at all. Meaning that if you had a 300 calorie beverage, you're not going to eat, you're unlikely to eat 300 calories less later on. You're likely to have an additional 300 calories per day, which can lead to energy imbalances that we uh, probably don't want. So, all right, we talked about activity. That's number one, two, dietary pattern, get your fiber on, get your plant matter on, figure out how to cook legumes, drink less <laughs> if that applies to you. Yep. Number three is going to be to set some sort of performance related goal. And I actually had a post uh, on this on our forum. Somebody was like, Hey, I haven't been able to get much stronger in the last few years, mainly because I don't know that I need to. And so what's your argument for me getting stronger? And I'm like, well, we've had a number of different studies come out this year that show that the health improvement potential of an exercise program seems to be tied in some sort of manner uh, to how much stronger people are getting um, in the uh, from that program. And the way that we've kind of rationalized this is that if the program is resulting in strength improvements, uh, it's likely means that you're just responsive to that program. And there are a bunch of other maybe overlapping mechanisms that lead to things like blood pressure lowering or blood glucose control or reductions in low density lipoprotein levels and stuff like that. So I think that your strength should improve over the next calendar year in some demonstrable way. And if your program is not doing that, whether it's you can do more reps at the same weight, you can add weight to the barbell or some combination thereof, I think the programming needs to be adjusted to manufacture that on some level. And it might not just be SBD. You know, it might be a, other exercises or whatever, but if you are not demonstrably on anything improving strength, I think the programming probably needs to be adjusted to, to make that happen. Yeah. And I think that if, to the extent that if you're, if you're trained, if you're, this person has been training that long and maybe they were just doing squat bench deadlift focused stuff, and maybe it was just focused on one rep max, like broaden your horizons, sure. you know, set some, like I said, you know, pulling 600 for 10 was pretty sick. So <laughs> go for some tens or pick different exercises altogether. Maybe even just the psychological sweat swap there might, um, you know, motivate you in a different way, light a fire so that you are, you know, training in a slightly different way and maybe you get a little more out of it. Um, you know, there's a bunch of different ways that I would go about this. What do you think your best repetition effort set was on any of the big three? What do you think the most impressive one is that you've done? You think it's a 600 for 10? Uh, I, I don't know. You think that squatting 500 for 10 is better than pulling 600 for 10? 
I mean, I me, kind of do. So. But yeah, mainly because <laughs> I've done six hundred. I've done six hundred six for ten, but I've never squatted five hundred for yeah, ten. Yeah, I, squatted, I lean towards squatting five hundred for ten. <laughs> I squatted five twenty for eight on a safety yeah. squat bar, okay. and I benched three thirty for ten, which I think yeah. for me is the most impressive, just because I'm like, yo, that's at least three plates for yeah, a bunch of yeah. reps. So yeah, I, I think uh, I reverse gripped three fifteen for ten. That was cool too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I'd also uh, instead of just a strength improvement, I would also probably add in some sort of conditioning improvement. And there are a bunch of different ways that you could like test this or evaluate this. You could have a particular piece, whether it's like a 2000 meter row or like a 10 minute cycling time trial or whatever. Uh, or if you wanted to get super nerdy about it, you could like test your own VO two max, uh, on a bike or a treadmill and, uh, see how that improves over, you know, every quarter, for example, I've linked some resources to do that in the description below. There's a article from, uh, the UK, uh, version of, uh, running world runner's world. It's a 10 minute sort of treadmill test and the original paper from Dr. Mauger on how to do this sort of self-paced, uh, VO two max test it takes 10 minutes. There are five different levels that you would either cycle or run at. And the last one is like, they call it RP 20, which is RP 10, just leave it all out there. And you basically see what your max heart rate was. And it kind of gives you through some back of the envelope, uh, math gives you your VO two max. And it actually seems to be pretty accurate and pretty That's interesting. Yeah, precise relative to an actual VO2 max test. So good enough, good enough for this purpose if you're interested in those hard data points. All right, so that's our top three. Fourth is going to be personal development. Hey, we're all about self-improvement here at Barbell Medicine. We want you to feel, look, and uh, otherwise be your best. And so I, you know, had a bunch of stuff on like, oh, we should, you know, uh, try to leverage social connections and, you know, you could engage in some additional education, get plugged in your community via volunteer work. I think all that stuff's useful, but, you know, the questions we always get are what books do you recommend? And uh, I, I, how many books do you think you read in 2021? Do you have a, do you have a count? What's, what's your book count? No, I don't keep track of a count. I think in 22 this year, 2022, yeah, that's right. Things yeah. probably fell off compared to the year before mm. um, for a couple reasons. Um, I was doing less of my extremely long commuting since uh, my wife and I were not living apart anymore. I was doing a lot of Audible at that point, or driving between. Um, and I have found several additional medical podcasts that I use to stay more up to date. So definitely the number, but I don't really put much emphasis on the number yeah um has has fallen off compared to, to prior years but kindle we'll kindle, kindle tells me i have 47 new download books in 2022 uh and i have I finished them all so between audible and kindle i've at least i'm 40 something uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's a good number or a bad number but for me you know i'm like hey it seems like a lot of books yeah. all right so here's our here's our some of our top book recommendations one i think you would sign be on board with this it was uh, Dr. Guyanet's uh, book, Hungry Brain. So Stefan Guyanet, I think it's from 20, 2017. Yeah, this is a few years back, but I think that it's such a, it, it, it is going to remain a really important topic for the foreseeable future. And as long as we continue trying to have this battle, having arguments with people on the internet, as I think you did recently on, oh, <laughs> on Twitter relating to like the concept of willpower as it relates to all sorts of outcomes compared to more deterministic underlying biology in a given environment and genetics and things like that. I think that it's just a really important topic that we are going to hope to continue pushing the, you know, moving the needle on. And this was a book that really heavily 
informed a lot of our initial thinking. I think it was the most well done at the time. Um, and, and so I continue to recommend it for folks who are interested in, in that space relating to obesity and, and how it happens and, and how that then informs our, our treatment strategies and things like that. So not a 2022 book necessarily, but it will probably always stay on a, on a, a top whatever list for me um, yep. when I'm recommending people in the health space. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Um, second book on our list is Burn by Dr. Herman Ponzer. We actually had him on our podcast, so I'll link that in the description below. Uh, you read this too. Do you read it? You think it was last year or you think you read it in 21? This was a 21 book. Yeah. So I think I did it during that year. What a great book. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I get that some of the ideas in there are controversial and still active areas of research with respect to how much uh, does an individual's total daily energy expenditure, how many calories do they burn per day, how much does that actually change secondary to physical activity. Um, but I think the book is pretty accessible. So even if you're not like from a you know super scientific background, it's pretty accessible. And I think the underlying ideas there are sound regardless of like where the data ends up taking us. And the underlying idea is that by increasing your physical activity, sure, you may increase your total daily energy expenditure a little bit, but it pales in comparison to how much you can change the energy balance by modifying the dietary pattern. And so, you know, if the multi-billion dollar question, maybe probably more than that, trillion dollar question is, should I exercise more or decrease my calories in order to lose weight? The answer is going to tend toward the latter eating less calories is going to have a far more meaningful effect on long-term body weight, body composition, uh, trajectory, et cetera. And so, and as far as how to change those things, well, let me refer you back to our number one on this list. Yeah, right. Exactly. They're a good pair, I think, for this whole topic. Yeah, I agree. Uh, a little bit off the beaten path as far as like relating to physical activity and dietary pattern is going to be Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I, have you ever read this book? Yes. Oh my God. What? A, I don't, I, I didn't read it this last year. I read it, uh, I think this was like 17 or 18. And I don't know, I wasn't really searching for, I don't, it wasn't like a, oh, I need a self-improvement book or whatever, but I got recommended this book. And I was like, when I read it, I was like, wow, a very profound book as far as like, what are we doing here? How do you make sense of, uh, you know, having all this time to make a difference, you know, if at all, and, 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 you know, instead of just being stuck in this like existential paralysis, like it, it just gives more perspective. And I really found it to be not an, only an enjoyable read, but an impactful read as far as like how I look at my existence on this planet, <laughs> whatever that's worth. So yeah, would 10 out of 10 would recommend, uh, I'll give a, a shout out to the noonday demon as a, another accompanying book. It's not by Frankel, but another, uh, psychiatrist who also had, um, some experience in uh, uh, the concentration camps. So that would be my 3A, if you will. Uh, number fourth book, number four book on this list is Behave by Dr. Sapolsky. Did you, do you, did you read this one? I did, although this is one that I feel like it is a hefty tome and I would like to make the time to make a second pass through it, honestly. Yes. Um, I think that the opening to it, I really, I mean, it, it was one of those that I think hooked me relatively quickly, particularly because he describes like, here's this behavior that just happened. Let's walk backward from like the millisecond to seconds to minutes to hours to days to like years to like birth and prior yeah, to birth. Yeah. All the 
all the influences on that behavior that just happened. And, you know, you may walk away from that book with a little bit more of a leaning towards like the the determinism side of things, which is fine, because I think that that's, you know, more accurate than a lot of, uh, you know, casual free will conversations, although I'm not uh, an expert in in that conversation to to open that can of worms. But but I do think the underlying biology of it is, is very interesting and might impact how you think about behavior and how you do things and the extent to which you are choosing anything. <laughs> yeah. So I actually, I did, I read this book twice. I read it once, just kind of like my own volition. And then I saw Dr. Sapolsky in, uh, at a, he did a little presentation in Long Beach. Uh, Leah and I actually went there and saw him and then, and he basically presented on this that thesis. book. Yeah. And, I, and I was like, shit, I need to read this again. <laughs> so I read it again, but I've, I've been a fan of his work for a number of years. So he wrote the, uh, why zebras don't get ulcers same author there. He also wrote The Trouble with Testosterone and other biological essays. Great book. Monkey Love, great book. But out of all of his books, Behave, I think for me, man, really raises a lot of important questions. And again, more perspective on why people have certain behaviors, what to do about them in your own behaviors, uh, for example. And I think if you are a healthcare professional, if you're a fitness professional, or just involved, like interested in general, like how humans act and why, pretty, pretty good book. And I, I also find it to be fairly accessible. Like you don't have to have a master's degree level training to like get through this book and, and take something important away for it from it. Uh, number five on this, on this list, deep work by Cal Newport. Uh, I think this was from like a, a business mastermind recommendation. I think it was actually Mike T who was like involved in like some sort of business development course. And he told me about this book and I was like, I don't know, Mike, like, but he's like, just pick it up and take, you know, thumb through it. Oh my gosh. For, for me. And again, my schedule is interesting because I kind of have to like make my own choices, so to speak about like when I'm going to work and like what work I'm going to do. And, you know, it's very easy to get distracted and to do a bunch of menial tasks and be like, well, I just spent seven hours working. So I guess I'm, I'm done for the day or eight hours working for the day. And I'm done. Um, this book is really interesting as far as like practical tips and strategies for fully realizing your potential with respect to creating something or doing work. Um, and I needed that. And so if you're at all interested in like, I would like to be more productive in 2023, or I would like to do more meaningful work. Uh, this, this particular book, I, uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend, um, oh my gosh. All right. Yeah. Number six is no surprise to me. You want to take people through the number six <laughs> recommendation on this list? Well, you had, you had the first five and I hadn't contributed any. So yeah, all right, fair know, enough. I've, I've, uh, I've recommended this one enough, but, uh, how minds change by Dave McCraney, who does the, you are not so smart podcast is one that I think pretty much everybody should uh, read both to understand how our brains work as it relates to holding certain beliefs and then how we can interact with other humans in a more productive way relating to their beliefs. And if we want to venture down the road of trying to influence other people's beliefs, there are uh, much more and much less effective ways to do that. And so how you can think about that and approach it. And that may also inform your decision about whether you try to go and change (laughs) anybody's beliefs. But I think that this was, um, I mean, I followed his stuff for a long time. You could probably go back to the early days of this podcast and we have references to the, you are not so smart podcast. I think he does really interesting, good work. Um, but I think that this is kind of like a culmination of uh, probably many years of learning on his part and, and distillation. And so it's something that um, continues to 
influence my own thinking about how I engage with others on various topics, both, you know, you know, just in socially, uh, but even like in the medical realm with patients, how I talk to patients about certain things and how I probe and assess their thought, thoughts and beliefs and expectations and, and how I can nudge those in the direction that I think is more favorable for their health outcomes even. Um, so definitely a strong, strong recommendation for me. Yes. And then I see you recommended the If Books Could Kill podcast, which I am now <laughs> fully caught up. I will make this, this disclaimer. Uh, if you're going to listen to that podcast, I would do it without children around. And then also, <laughs> if you are offended by uh, cor uh, coarse language, maybe not the podcast for you, but I did find it very entertaining. And I also found it, uh, again, less of a like... I don't know, data-driven like analysis of very popular books like Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers or like um, Freakonomics or whatever. It's not like, oh, well, this actual study said this and here's the you know, reference. It's more of like a critical look at that using plain language in an entertaining way. But again, yeah, if you're sensitive to coarse language, which is fine, probably not the podcast yeah. for you. Do you think that's, you think that's fair? <laughs> I think that's very fair. I have no issue with any type of, <laughs> any of their, their type of language. I find, um, I find it both entertaining and I, and I think it's, um, I don't know, like, I feel like a lot of those books, they, they call them collectively airport books. Yeah. Um, that was like their mission is, is taking these airport books that somebody, you know, you might have be, you know, wandering through an airport and a layover or something and grab one of these from a, from a local bookstand or something. And it's, very often those kind of like maybe pop science-y kind of, kind mm -hmm. of texts. And um, I don't know, I feel like many of them, and particularly as the authors maybe gain some reputation, they just like get a pass and, and they are able to be written in a poor way or just purely on like non-evidence-based anecdote and try to draw like pretty profound conclusions that may be not super well justified. And so I think that these guys basically take a sledgehammer to that, which I'm a fan of. <laughs> yeah. The Freakonomics one was really interesting to me, like when they critically kind of take them to task for making like very poor comparisons that really aren't you know, it's like a bait and switch kind of situation yeah, a lot of times. Yeah. And you're like, huh, when I read yeah. that, I didn't, pick, <laughs> I didn't pick up on that, but I right. appreciate you bringing this to light, you know, so yeah. make, think yeah. more critically. Right. Okay. Our fifth recommendation for new year, new you, we got to talk about medicine. Of course, uh, no disclaimers to make, like uh, none of us are receiving checks from big pharma or big like laboratory test or something like that. But, uh, invariably, I think this is important to, um, kind of give people some background to like, what should they do medically, you know, to promote a really great um, health trajectory. And so I was having this discussion the other night on like how to even pick a doctor. Like if I was picking a doctor, like how would I come to that decision? And we have gotten this question a number of times, like how do I pick a primary care physician? Like, should I have a primary care physician? Like thing one. Um, and so I think Austin, and I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on this. My thought is that if you are an adult, so you're an adult in this world, you probably should have a relationship with a primary care physician. Just you should have established care at some point in your adult life. So you're in college or you're fresh out of college uh, or you're otherwise in your 20s. You should probably have a primary care physician because invariably you're going to need a medical opinion at some point for something, uh, maybe sooner, maybe later, whatever. But if you have not established care, then that's just an additional step in the process 
that you're going to have to undertake. And if you need an urgent medical opinion, well, then, you know, you end up in urgent care, not getting necessarily the best care that you would otherwise want. So my recommendation, have a primary care physician you've established care with if you are an adult. Um, Obviously, if you have the means to do so and, you know, resources, et cetera. So then when you go out picking one, my bias, and again, some of this is evidence-based, other this is, some of this is like experience-based or, you know, like just my own navigation through the health health uh, uh, profession. I would want somebody who has graduated from residency relatively recently, a few years out, for example, who is also associated with an academic institution. So they're affiliated with a local medical school uh, or something like that. They teach residents or med stu- students uh, or uh, ideally both. Um, and they have enough time to see me so I can make an appointment and see them, you know, within a week or two. Uh, so they're not so booked that I got to see them months later or like something like that. And finally that we have good rapport. Like I could just feel like I can talk to, uh, the physician, um, in a normal manner. I don't feel nervous or ostracized, like whatever, you know, there's just some people don't gel together. So is that, do you, are you on board with all of that for like a primary care type doctor or you have any? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that there are reasonable things to prefer, but I also view several of them as just that as kind of preferences. Um, and, and I think that some people, some people may have different preferences in, in what they would be looking for. They may not necessarily care if somebody is academically affiliated or not. And so, so I think it's worth mentioning like why you have that in your preference list. Yeah. So the first thing for like recent graduate, I just know that they've had the most recent training and all the latest evidence-based stuff, because that is not only what's on the boards and that's what's on your, you know, standardized, standardized tests, but you're also held to account for executing evidence-based practice throughout your medical training. Um, And then if you're affiliated with an academic institution and you're charged with teaching future doctors, you have to stay ahead of the curve. Otherwise you're going to be embarrassed in front of your, the people who you're teaching. So it's different if you're, you know, if you're a primary care and you're out in private practice and you've been out there for 20, 30 years, I'm not saying those people are bad necessarily. It's just that you're, there's no incentive really for staying up to date, less incentive. Um, obviously everybody wants to do their best and provide the best care to their patients. But I think you are certainly incentivized more to do that. Um, a physician certainly is if they are affiliated with an academic institution and are charged with teaching people. And so that's why, you know, my preferences kind of revolve around that. I'm like, well, I want the best care. If I'm going to get off my butt and go see a doctor, like (laughs) I want to make sure that they're up on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like you said, some of this is evidence-based. I think there's a very commonly cited systematic review, but although it's getting a bit dated at this point from 2005 by Chowdhury and, and their colleagues in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And it's basically looked at the relationship between clinical experience and the quality of healthcare, because a common assumption might be universally, the more experienced the person, the better care I'm going to get. And they actually found that, you know, may not necessarily go in that direction. Um, it might be the case that, um, you know, many, many, many more years in, in practice may leave you more removed from, you know, the most current kind of evidence-based, uh, uh, you know, guidelines and recommendations and things like that, such that care may actually get worse at the extremes of age and experience in practice. So, um, so I, I think that, you know, your, your criteria are, are reasonable. They, they are not going to be, you know, possible for everybody. It's not like everybody in the world can have access to somebody like that. But I think that those are reasonable criteria to, to look for. Yep. Um, in, in my own practice, I mean, yes, I, I suppose meet several of those, those criteria, but it takes a, I, I put a very, very large amount of effort into, um, you know, ongoing 
self-study and reading and staying up to date with things and trying to improve both the way that I teach and deliver this stuff and the way that I practice it. And I know that if I were not in an academic institution, if I were just in a private practice clinic or something, um, the incentive to do that would be much lower. I may still do it because I want to. Uh, that's the kind of you know nerdy person that I am, but that's not the norm. Um, yeah. And so, so I think that those are you know generally reasonable criteria. Here's the interesting thing that people might you know, find, uh, tantalizing. I do not care what knowledge of exercise or dietary pattern change that my physician has. I, I would prefer for their other patients, for example, that they had, uh, some knowledge of those things, or at least the behavior change counseling skills to like really recommend them or refer them appropriately. But I'm not going to my doctor for lifting advice or dietary pattern change advice. I might ask, for a referral to physical therapy if I need that, or a referral to a registered dietitian if I need that. But I do not care if they're like, don't know, you know, about squats and deadlifts and bench press or whatever. I would prefer if they were uh, appropriately cautious to like not say silly things like squats are bad for your knees or deadlifts are bad for your back. Right, right, that right. would be a red flag. <laughs> but I also don't care if they're not up on the latest stuff on resistance training and you know sure yeah uh, but i would just prefer like if we had this interaction and they asked what i did and they'd be like huh i'm curious maybe i'll <laughs> i'll check your stuff out yeah that'd be great but i you know people are like i need a doctor who understands my lifting lifestyle i'm like why yeah you probably don't honestly probably, probably don't yeah <laughs> what you'd be more concerned is that how uh, up to date are they on the evidence for the reasons that you're seeing them um which uh probably for most people listening to this um especially folks who maybe haven't interfaced with the uh healthcare field recently has to do with screening and so we've done podcasts directly on screening um and we talked about it in multiple other podcasts and multiple articles and videos and whatnot but if you are an adult and you have not interfaced with the health uh, healthcare profession recently, one reason to maybe see your doctor here in 2023 is for screening. And so I've linked in the description below the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. Uh, they have a web app where you basically plug in your gender, your age, uh, other sort of uh, characteristics, and it basically spits out a list of like, these are the things we recommend you get screened for just based on lifestyle and, and again, your, your demographic. Uh, right. And I think if you know that list pops up and you're like, I haven't had any of those, it's like, hey, you just earned yourself a trip to the doctor <laughs> just because at that point, like this particular web app uses data to give out very high quality recommendations for things that we know can not only prevent things that have long-term undesirable effects, uh, and then we can catch them early and potentially do something about them um, rather than like going to the doctor and saying, yeah, just test me for everything like, hmm. or not going to the doctor and not being tested. So, you know, both of those things would, would be less than ideal. Uh, and so, yeah, you'll see things on there like everybody should have their blood pressure measured. You probably need to get your lipids measured. I think the, what are the current NLA guidelines say? Is it 25, 35, or is it just an adult? Like yeah. So those are the few guidelines that I do not pay attention to because I don't see a reason to delay lipid screening in pretty much anybody. Sure, um, yeah. I think doing it early and if they're normal, then cool. You can space it out pretty darn far. Uh, mm -hmm. But if they're high, I would rather, you know, catch people's high blood cholesterol levels earlier in life and get those under control rather than wait until somebody's 40 to even start doing anything about it or 50 because half of all cardiovascular events happen in people below the age of 65 uh, yeah. in men. So that's like, I would rather catch that stuff earlier. 
Yeah. So you would you would check somebody's blood pressure. You would send a lipid panel if you were in the primary care clinic outpatient. Uh, you would probably send an A1C just if they're there and they have any sort of risk factor for diabetes. They have a high waist measurement or something like that, right? Yep, yeah. exactly. And you're screening them for obesity at that point. And then effectively you're like, okay, so once these results come back, that might charge me to do other things. But, you know, yeah. it's a handful of tests, some STD testing as well, or STI testing and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. depending on lifestyle. Uh, but yeah. If you have not, again, interfaced with the healthcare uh, professional in recent times, 2023 is your year. Uh, yeah. Anything else you think from a medical standpoint you think is would make your top five? I, I think that there are relatively few things that we can do in medicine to healthy people who have no symptoms or complaints that have the potential to make a big impact on their health. There are very, very, very few of those mm-hmm. things. And given that there are so few those are the things that are worth doing <laughs> Yeah. in contrast to what you said, where we often hear from people who are like healthy, well, no complaints. And they're like, I just went and got all my hormones tested. And it's like, Why? no, 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 that's, <laughs> yeah. that's not how this should be done. Um, you should get your blood pressure checked. You should get your blood lipids checked. You should get a small handful of other things done, which are listed on that web app that you've included and are helpfully listed and described in the uh, article on our website on the uh, seven priorities for health. I forget what the exact title is, but if you Google barbell medicine health priorities, that will be the first result. Um, Tom and I worked on that. And I think I currently stand by it as the things that I would put a high priority on for, for people to uh, who are concerned about their health. Yep. Yep. Much so. higher priority for all of those things than worrying about, you know, supplementing vitamin D or something like that. <laughs> or boron. Yes. Yeah. There yeah. You go. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So that's our top five list. And then here's the, you know, we're going to wrap this podcast up with like, well, how to do some of these things. We talked about physical activity. We talked about dietary pattern. We talked about performance, so performance goals, personal development. All right. Well, how to. And so I think first thing here is I want to say I would prefer most people do have a process oriented approach versus outcome oriented. So from a physical activity standpoint, I just want you to engage, uh, for example, in this particular context in more conditioning. I don't necessarily care how fast you go, or how long you go, or how far you go or whatever. Uh, and I wouldn't put, you know, a sort of that, that to be the goal. Like, Oh, I, I, I said earlier, for example, I want to row a sub 20 minute five K, but in order to do that, uh, my goal is to be on the rower at least three times a week. Because I know that if I continue to engage in that sort of practice, I'm likely to get close to that um, and achieve that rather than being like, well, the only thing I'm focused on is can I do the thing? Um, So I'd rather be process oriented. From a dietary pattern standpoint, I want you to eat vegetables, for example, or fruit or both at every meal. And so at that point, well, now we've just included bumped up your plant matter. And so the outcome eating more plant matter happens via the process. And so things of that nature, uh, same thing with, I would rather, instead of saying, I want to read 50 books in 2023. Well, I want you to read every day for 10 minutes or something like that. Just engage in the process, focus on that. And then the outcome will sort of, you'll get there. Um, so that's thing one thing two is having an approach oriented, uh, goal versus avoidance oriented. And this is more like whatever you're doing, you're, try, you're doing it to achieve a positive outcome rather than avoiding a negative one. Uh, so for example, if your goal is to lose weight, um, so to make it process oriented, I would say, oh, I want to you know, regularly uh, eat a health promoting dietary pattern and regularly exercise and um, you know, maybe change my food environment. And then I should ideally achieve the outcome, which is in this case, weight loss. But as far as why you're doing that, I would like to be approach oriented, meaning that I, once I lose weight, I'm going to feel much better than I feel now. I'll be able to do things I can't currently do, um, rather than avoiding this sort of like a avoidance oriented, which would be like, uh, I want to avoid a negative health outcome. 
just in general, people seem to have better adherence when they favor a positive outcome rather than avoiding a negative one. So that's part two. Three, look, again, January 1 is Sunday starting and kicking off the new year, motivation is going to be at an all-time high. And this is not an evidence-based recommendation. This is more of an experience-based recommendation. I know that when motivation is high, or it's been my experience rather, that people change in their behaviors when they have additional motivation, I can leverage that for a finite and relatively short period of time to change things that actually matter. Meaning that I want people to leverage this additional motivation to change the environment, to change that, that they're uh, interacting and uh, change some of their um, habits in a way to set themselves up for success so that their default behavior is to eat a health promoting dietary pattern, go to the gym, things of that nature. So if you got these first maybe two weeks of January 2023, you can remove ultra processed foods from the house. You can, uh, you know, again, you're doing the hard thing because you have this additional motivation to change your di- your shopping patterns, to pack your gym bag that's in your car, uh, to, you know, set yourself up for success. So instead of having to rely on willpower when things get hard, that you've set your environment up where the default behavior is the desired behavior. Um, and of course, it's not always going to be perfect, but it's like, if you have the additional motivation, let's use it. Let's learn how to prepare legumes. Let's, you know, learn how to get a quicker workout in when thing, when times are tough. You're going to go through, you know, at least one weekend, maybe two weekends where you have increased motivation. How do you deal with a social situation where, you know, the food options aren't that great or you're tempted to uh, drink uh, an excessive amount or whatever? And so, generating strategies, building skills, having resources that you're, again, using quote unquote willpower or motivation to overcome gives you some additional tools to draw from later on in addition to changing your environment so that, again, the behaviors become more automatic and require less conscious effort to do. Because come December of 2023, you're going to be all out of motivation, and, and the idea is that, well, we've changed the environment enough. We've changed your skill set enough. We've changed the way that you approach difficult situations enough uh, that in general, most of the time, your behaviors are the ones that are desired. And so, look, two weeks, let's, let's make some big things happen. That's kind of, again, I don't have evidence to support that, but that's been my, it's one of the coaching things that I do regularly uh, with folks. Um, the next thing I would do is to try to, use a group um, or some sort of additional people to make the behavior change you're trying to make. So whether that's you have a friend, you guys are going to try to uh, lose weight together or start exercising more together or read more, whatever it is. Uh, if you have additional social support, man, that is an evidence-based recommendation. <laughs> so having more people that you're doing the thing with, you guys can not only share skills and and tips and whatever, but also commiserate together when times are tough. Like all of this stuff is helpful. Um, and so I would not try to go at any of these things alone. And uh, your friends may, you know, say, oh, you're always trying to get us to exercise or get us to eat better. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. I'm trying to live a long and fulfilling life with you guys. Let's do this. So I think leveraging some social support could be also be within your family or otherwise immediate circle. That'd be useful. And my last, my last bro tip, maybe a pro tip, bro tip is plan, plan for ups and downs. I do not suspect that anybody trying to make a massive change in their behavior to have this linear experience where things keep getting better and better and easier and easier. You're going to have ups and downs. You're going to have struggles. You're going to have trials and tribulations. You're going to, you know, uh, have to overcome those things. Um, but if you plan for it, or if you understand that that's part of the process, you're less likely to get into this habit of all or none thinking where it's like, oh, I messed up this one thing and now let's throw everything out. It's like, just plan uh, or understand that it's going to be a 
uh, not a straight path from where you are to where you want to be. But uh, you keep stacking those little wins over a whole year. Man, I'll be really excited to see what our mailbag looks like in, at the end of 2023. If people are, you know, what, the, what they're doing. Our current, like the, the emails I get to the media at barbellmedicine.com uh, website have been really cool. Like people just saying, oh, I found your beginner program and, uh, or I found your, uh, article on uh, food environment or your podcast on food environments really changed the way, uh, that I, I, uh, have been, you know, approaching this problem with either exercise or dietary pattern. And it's like, man, that's really cool. And I hope to see more of those things at the end of, uh, of the next year. But, uh, anything on this how to stuff, Austin, you would, you would add on there. Nothing I would add. I just one thing that a thought that came to mind listening to your steps that you laid out is really just how similar and how closely this parallels our conversations with folks from a rehab standpoint. Um, it is essentially identical. And I think that a lot of people don't necessarily view the rehab process as itself like a behavior change thing. And a lot of times it is like I'll work with people who have back pain and I'm trying to change their behavior uh, as far as what they tend to do for their back pain, for example. And so this is something that not only as it relates to the various health out, uh, behaviors that you were trying to promote, but I think that there are probably some people listening who are maybe going into the new year with an ache or a pain or an injury, and they might be struggling with motivation for that reason. They're like, you know, I, I would love to go in on Monday and squat, you know, something heavy or something, but I have this knee pain or this back pain or whatever the case is that I'm, that I'm dealing with. And I think that if you can, you know, hit the whatever 30 seconds back arrow a few times on your pod, podcast player and listen to those uh, steps again, not through the lens necessarily of the other health behaviors, but basically from the lens of rehab saying that I want this to be a process oriented approach instead of an outcome oriented one. I want it to be approach oriented towards a positive outcome rather than avoiding a negative one. Like I want to do this to feel better rather than to avoid hurting or something like that. Um, leveraging motivation, the environment, groups, social support, and most especially planning for ups and downs along the way, all of those things similarly apply to uh, pain, rehab, uh, getting back to the things you want to be able to do. So if that's you going into the new year, then use those same steps for that too. I was, uh, depending on how long this podcast lasted, I was thinking about reading mean YouTube replies for uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, to, just to put it out there. But Hey, we've been on this thing for 90 minutes, so I think yeah. I think we're just done. Uh, yeah, we, can, we don't have to worry about the haters. <laughs> that's right. Not today. What do we say to death? Not today. Uh, so yeah, for every, from everybody here at Barbell Medicine, uh, this has been episode 206, our year in review and how to have the best year of your life. Again, it's been uh, pro sponsored by Pioneer Belts. You can check them out at generalleathercraft.com for all your belt, wraps, straps, and training accessory needs. Uh, and yeah, happy new year to everybody. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. For Dr. Austin Baraki, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Have a great new year, everybody. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker. 
engineering your success.